Dr. Roney and I are convinced that those arthropods are not of this earth. Where then? One possibility is Mars. Mars is dead. There's nothing there but a few scraps of light. Oh, five million years ago, it may have been very different. Oh. Suppose at that time, there were living beings there with advanced techniques. Well, no harm in supposing. Techniques that enabled them to visit this Earth at a time when the most advanced creatures on it, our own ancestors, were still only a type of Pliocene ape. Suppose that they had other techniques, biological ones. Welcome back to Hooning Company. It's episode 45, and I'm Brent. And I'm Drew. Our September guest is accomplished artist Robert Hack. Robert joins the company to discuss his introduction to the art world, comic books, the chilling adventures of Sabrina, his collection of genre memorabilia, horror films, and of course, Doctor Who. Next, we'll travel five million years to Earth to discuss Robert's pick of the month, Quatermass, particularly 1958 six-parter Quatermass in the Pit. We'll go over the series, the 1967 Hammer film, and the show's legacy and influence on modern genre TV. This is a great conversation that takes a ton of tangents, but also covers a wealth of topics, including some mild spoilers for Quatermass. And all that's coming up right after this. Give me a drink, quick. Whiskey, anything. I just got caught in it out there. Well, what's the matter with you all, don't you know? Know what? All those people running. Must have been an explosion or something. I could hear a... Give me another. Yes, yes, there must be hundreds out here. I say, do you feel up to moving? I really think oh. we ought. Ah! Something went off. It was in here. Where? Oh, I don't know. Don't see nothing. That's it. Like the noise down the street. What is it, Arthur? I don't, I don't know, I'm sure. Oh, don't say it's fishing on sand, for God's sake! We've got the perfect guest for this month as we step into fall and a chill enters the air. His art has graced the covers of several hundred comics over the years, depicting characters such as Doctor Who, The X-Files, Dirk Gently, Archie, Archie vs. Predator, and... Archie versus Sharknado, but he is probably best known as the artist of the Chilling Adventures of Sabrina comics, which inspired the Netflix series. Robert Hack, welcome to Who and Company. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm so happy to have you here. Uh, we are going to start off as we have been starting off all of our uh, episodes during these trying times by asking, how are you holding up with the lockdown? So you're probably gonna have to edit out my 45 minute scream. <laughs> um, no, things, things are going well. Uh, things are existing. E everyone here is fine. Um, no, no, uh, 
no COVID emergencies here. Uh, our cat went blind, so doing a lot of vet visits during COVID has been oh, terrible. I'm sorry, man. You know, he's getting along really well. Yeah, yeah. it sounds like it, just, just following on social media. He is sitting on the desk with me, <laughs> currently enjoying the day. So a lot of vet visits um, uh, and a lot of binging, a lot of, a lot of watching TV. Yeah, what are you, what are you watching? Uh, we're currently working our way through the Andy Sidaris Film Library. Wow. Uh, 1980s exploitation, crime, sexploitation, over-the-top 80s, big hair, violent action films. Uh-huh. You, you like your exploitation films, don't you? I really do. Uh, <laughs> that's, uh, yeah, I'm a weirdo. I don't think I've ever talked with anyone who, with such a diversified film taste as you. Um, just, just your, your posts of, Hey, these came in the mail. And I'm like, I have not heard of any of those films. And that coming from someone who was at one point in time, a film student is saying something. My tastes seem to be very highbrow and astoundingly lowbrow, like not much in the middle. It's like great and crap. And, and, and that really, that really sums me up. Brent, how are you doing, bud? Oh, we're doing pretty well. Uh, the wife is still looking for a job. And um, so that part's a little terrible. But uh, other than that, um, work's going along fine. Uh, we're doing okay here. Uh, as far as binging, I have, and people in the UK get ready to laugh. I have just discovered a, a show called Silent Witness, which has <laughs> apparently been on for like 26 years, yes. <laughs> 24 years or something like that. And um, uh, it's, I found it in um, Amazon Prime. And so I have started with episode one and I am uh, about to finish the first season. It's really good. It's really, uh, really creepy. A little more um, uh, graphic might not be the word, but it's a little uh, more heavy than I expected it to be. It, it's a lot like Prime Suspect, that sort of sure. crack cracker, that kind of show. Mm-hmm. And, and I love those shows. So uh, yeah, it's, it's really, really good so far. Well, that's cool. Yeah. Um, we've been binging Lucifer. We were we went on a spy movie kick. Uh, we're actually it's kind of weird. You know, we've I, I have definitely I'm happy to say that I'm coming out of this six month funk that that has sort of plagued me since all of this came down, uh, and I didn't really realize I was in it until sort of grad school kicked in and I was forced to use my brain a lot more than I have been. And, uh, you know, like work is picked up and grad school is picked up. And, and when you're challenging your brain, you just kind of have to force it out of the place that it was in. And I'm feeling a lot better than I, I had been. And um, we've also just been giving ourselves time to watch movies, which I, I just I haven't felt like I've had the, the emotional concentration to sit down and watch anything for 90 minutes. Uh, and so we've been we've been going through the Daniel Craig Bond films. Uh, we've been watching a lot of the Mission Impossible stuff, and we were looking for something fun that wasn't too heavy. And we had heard some recommendations for Lucifer, and we're watching that. And we're we're about halfway through the third season. We're watching one or two episodes a day, and it's it's fine. There there are moments when it really shines, and it's kind of charming, but it's also really kind of a popcorn show. I don't know if either one of you have watched it, but um, it's fine. 
<laughs> There's a lot of Neil Gaiman references, and that's kind of cute. I have to ask, is there a definite difference between um, the Fox version and then when it switched over to Netflix? I, uh, Netflix, I haven't gotten to there yet. Oh, okay. So uh, we're still – is it Fox? Um, mm -hmm. uh, we're – I think – I think it's after this season it jumps over to Netflix, uh, and I'm I'm looking forward to that. But because right now it's kind of boring me, uh, and I'm I'm I may not give it more than a couple more episodes. I think it's it's just kind of been filling like filler episodes. I think season three's got like 26 episodes, where season one had 13. So you know it's kind of that Brit thing where it feels like I'm feeling the bloat, and uh, mm -hmm. I'm not enjoying it as much. Uh, so we'll see. So yeah, Lucifer. Uh, go figure. I have uh, been getting texts from my mother for the last month saying, are you watching Lucifer? Really? It is her new favorite show. Okay, this is weird. So I wasn't going to mention this, but the reason we're watching this show is my wife's mother has been letting, telling us that I've been watching Lucifer and really enjoying it. And we're like, clearly she must mean a different program because it doesn't <laughs> seem like anything that she would watch. Uh, we're still, we're kind of gobsmacked as we're watching it going, I don't understand what the draw is. Now, your mother might be very different from my mother-in-law. So is, does she like similar stuff? Is that where you get your taste from? I, I, yeah, it really is. Uh, but she loved Buffy when it was on. Okay. And she loves supernatural stuff. And, and honestly, yeah, yeah. The love of Grindhouse, the love of exploitation cinema totally comes from her i don't she would completely deny it but <laughs> she watches so much fun garbage oh i love it yeah my love of garbage comes from my father uh absolutely my mother hates that kind of stuff so but that's really cool that's i like that um did you did you watch movies with like that with her growing up yeah she, she always loved horror there was always uh, uh -huh. horror films uh I, I was never told no when getting the stack of VHS from the rental place. Like if something was like too gross or too horrific, even as a kid, there was, there was no, there was not, oh no, that's not age appropriate. It's like, oh, fun horror film. Have fun. Cool. Nice. Uh, what was, do you think the most inappropriate film that you watched with your parents at a young age? Oh, I have no answer for this. I'm, I'm sure I'm blocking the memory out. I do. I, I have two answers oh, for this. I'm writing, a, I'm writing a, an essay right now for a, a collection on British cinema. And my pitch was Zardoz because <laughs> I watched Zardoz with my father. It was the second movie we ever rented on VHS. The first being Godzilla 1984. Uh, and I was probably eight years old. Uh, when I watched Zardoz, and it is a thoroughly inappropriate show, a movie for an, for an eight-year-old. I mean, you know, like TNA and violence and rape, and like it's and it just it's also incomprehensible even as adult. And I'm and I'm saying this as someone who loves the film and has seen it probably thirty or more times, but like as a kid, I cannot imagine what that did to my eight-year-old psyche. And then later in high school, we rented uh, Naked Lunch uh, and watched. I watched that with my both of my parents. <laughs> that was that was uh, that was an experience. Right? You watch? Do you watch bad movies with your family? Oh God, yeah, all the time. 
uh, we got a VCR in 85. So that was the heart of crap movies at the video. Yeah. Store. Um, <clears throat> I have to say though, I think the very first uh, VHS that we rented and watched on the new VCR was um, the Scorpions worldwide live concert tour. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm a huge music fan. So no, yeah, absolutely. That was my choice. But uh, yeah, uh, good and bad. Mostly what was popular uh, in the late 80s that we like to watch a lot were all the revenge films that were out. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And some were great and some were really bad. Um, I think Bullies was one that I, that I liked that wasn't very popular. Hmm. I don't know if you've seen that one. I don't think I have. But things like Mad Max. I, and, I, know that. I remember reading Mad Max back then. That's the first time I saw it. That's yeah, classic. I watched that one early on. I think Mad Max actually was might have been predated uh, VHS. I think I watched it on HBO during that time where you know we all get the little black box that would pick up uh, HBO for free that it seemed like everybody had. I don't know anyone who actually paid for HBO in the eighties. Um, everyone seemed to have like that little box that you would <laughs> you could pay the cable guy that extra twenty four and he would just put it in. Um, but that was definitely one I watched. Actually, speaking of the 80s, um, I, I have come to a realization, and actually, Robert, you would be like, I think, really appreciate this. Uh, I'm, I'm doing a piece uh, for another podcast. Uh, we are going to review uh, uh, the 1988's The Blob, mm-hmm. um, which I hadn't seen in probably 15, 20 years. I just remember going, yeah, movie. I bought it on, on DVD when I found it used, um, and mm-hmm. I hadn't really revisited it until about two weeks ago. And it's a masterpiece. I mean, it is an absolute masterpiece. And it, it made me realize that my roots in horror aren't horror per se, but are really based on the remakes of the 1950s atomic sci-fi horror films. Because like my favorite movies uh, and uh, John Carpenter's The Thing and things like, um, uh, like, like Them and invasion of the body snatchers and the blob and and stuff like that Uh, the fly um cronenberg's the fly like these that's really the genre that kind of got me into horror particularly body horror and really the blob i just i like listen if you're listening to this podcast please finish the podcast but then go out and watch uh 1988's the blob it is a fantastic film um uh, i watched it again just a few months ago yeah, uh, my girlfriend had never seen it. I actually borrowed the DVD from my mom, <laughs> um, and uh, we hadn't watched it. My my girlfriend could not finish it. Oh no! Uh, she gross. Got she got uh, she got to the bit uh, where the 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 couple making out the girl is hollowed out from the inside. Yes, just dusted her hands. Loves horror can get through any horror, but any sort of parasite eaten from within kind of thing. Okay, is it is just her her trigger. Yeah. So uh, I watched it. I finished the rest of my own. I hadn't seen it since I was a kid and it is so much better than it's legacy deserves. I mean, it's yeah. like no one really talks about how great it is. You know um, I mean, I, I no movie is ever going to supplant John Carpenter's the thing uh, in my, I think my love of horror, but, but I think that the blob is as good of a remake in terms of quality based on its original source material as John Carpenter's The Thing. Um, in fact, I mean, it's, it's one of those things where it, it, it definitely 
is better than its source material in, in, in almost all ways. I think they really, they really, I mean, it, that's Frank Darenbaut too, as a, as a script writer more than probably anything else. I think the script is super intelligent and the whole thing feels like a nod to Hitchcock. Clearly my preparation for this future podcast that I'm doing is coming through in this. And that's not what we're supposed to be talking about today. I want to talk about you. Uh, and particularly I want to talk about your work in comics. Um, when did you start reading comic books? All right. I'm going to get to that in one moment. I just oh, want to please. ask one thing more. One more thing about the blob. Yes, yes, yes. Please. Have you ever seen the sequel to the blob? So um, the. Where the blob. So that's the one that was shot by JR, right? It was. Yeah. I have not. not good. <laughs> I have not. Uh, I was, uh, so Scream Factory had, uh, came out with, in late October of last year, Scream Factory came out with a, a remake of the 88 Blob on Blu-ray and it immediately sold out. And I have been scouring eBay trying to get a copy of it. And as in doing my research, I found out about this movie, but I had never mm-hmm. seen it. And I started watching clips from JR's Beware the Blob. And it's, it looks like the kind of trash that would only be worth watching with a group. Not even then. Oh, it's no. Not even <laughs> it's not even fun. But it is, I mean, yeah, I suppose if, you, if you're all riffing it and writing on it, but, but some things are just painful. Mm. Just painful. I, you know what? Um, Honestly, I hate to hear that. Like, I love bad, and, and I'll watch it any day of the week. But there's, like, levels of bad. It somehow transcends all of them. Oh. oh. I mean, definitely. That hurts my heart a little bit. Yeah, no, definitely no, I'll, down, but... I'll definitely watch it. That's horrible to say. Okay, comic books. <laughs> let's talk about oh, yeah, comics. Yeah, my nonsense. Let's 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 get back to that. I want to talk. Let's let's talk about your nonsense. When did you? I'm, I'm going to assume that. I mean, you know, this is this is the field that you find yourself in. I'm assuming mm-hmm. that this is something that you were probably passionate from from an early age. Were you? Uh, yes, always loved comics. Uh, my brother is nine years older. Mm-hmm. Uh, he loved comics. He wanted to be a cartoonist. There were always comics around the house and mad magazines and national lampoons. And because he wanted to be a cartoonist, there were books about drawing and, and artist market uh, books. So even at an early age, I not just saw them as comics and entertainment, but also knew this was a possible career. This is something that people actually made this this was artists and writers and letterers and colorists all working together. So I, I, I knew that always that that was just innate growing up. And I think around the time most kids would have been giving up comics, I discovered the, the eighties indie boom of, of black and white comics in the cheap bins because it was late eighties by that point, they were all a quarter each. And I just bought every weird book I could find. And at a, at a period when I probably should have been growing out of comics, I found this new world of it didn't have to be one set kind of story. It's just like every kind of weirdness you can imagine put on paper was, could be a comic. Could I throw out a couple of titles and see if, uh, if I'm right? Yes. Radioactive Black Belt Hamsters? You are correct. Uh, how about Blood Junkies on Capitol? No, never saw it. Oh, that one's a that one's a cool one. Uh, 
All right. What else? What else? Uh, what else did you find in the quarter bins that that piqued your interest? Um, a book called Silent Invasion uh, from the '90s was a 1950s sci-fi kind of book. Uh, what else? It was a lot of. At that point, there were also a lot of reprints mm. uh, in the late '80s from like people like Blackthorn and mm-hmm. uh, Eclipse. Oh God, Eclipse Renegade. was my was my everything. <laughs> yeah, oh, loved Eclipse. Still do Airboy. Oh and, yeah, and stuff like that. Oh. Uh, so, so all of these Eclipse books and um, reprints of old pulp material that has turned out to be <laughs> where my brain goes, uh, recreating the the sort of pulp era. Yeah, well, there I mean, was one called Spicy Tales that was reprints sorry, of pulp comics. Hmm? Spicy Tales. Spicy Tales. Uh, reprinting. There was a, a line of pulps in the 30s uh, that were called Spicy. It was like Spicy Adventure, Spicy Detective. And uh, there were some reprints of those in the 80s that I found. And it's like, like A, that there was this world of pulp comics and detective comics that I hadn't seen before and, 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 and had come to love. But also, the people of the 1930s were filthy, filthy, filthy people. <laughs> Oh, yeah, they were, and I loved it for them. This is very much pre-Hays Code version of comics. Right, yeah. Uh, so they were competing with pre, pre-Code movies, and the comics, oh, there is a, a, a long history of weird, illegal goings-on with, with, with the Spicy publisher. Spicy was owned by Harry Donenfeld, who co-owned DC Comics. Oh my goodness! But he he, he kind of kept his involvement secret. I wonder why. <laughs> the spicy pulps were constantly being pulled for indecency laws, and they actually in New York City were actually taken to court for violating indecency laws. And one of the editors stepped up and took the blame instead of the owners. Oh, interesting. So, so this guy actually went to jail for a couple of years. And, and when he got out, he had a job at DC Comics for life. That's really, that's that, amazing. That is the story I have heard, and I, and I am and I'm still hoping that, that that is the true version of it. Um, but the Spicy Pulps had two-page comics uh, in them. And these comics were the first original characters in comics, full stop. Like, everything in comics earlier than that were comic strip characters repurposed, cut the strips down and repurposed them as comics, comic hmm. books. Right, right, sure, yeah. So these were the first actual characters created for the form of comic books and the, the comic book page as we know it. So the birth of comics are these slightly smutty uh, little two-page uh, adventure comics and detective comics. How many of them do you own? Oh, reprints of a great deal. Uh, originals, I don't know, less than 10 probably. They're very pricey. Yeah, but you have some of them. Yes. Yeah, of course you do. Of course you do. I, I, eventually, I want to get around to your collection. Um, but uh, we should probably move forward a little bit before going yeah, on. Yeah, I live in a museum. No, I know you do. And and like, um, well, you know what? I'll, you know, I'll go ahead and, and just compare it because 
your collection. I recently found a book on um, a huge coffee table book on, on Guillermo del Toro's um, home. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was looking at it going, I bet hacks like halfway here. (laughs) I feel like, um, I feel like your collection, which I've only seen bits and pieces of, but I know I've sent you uh, a couple of pieces over the years uh, to add to the collection. Uh, I bet it's it kind of and I thank you phenomenal, for and and you're quite welcome. I have more for you. I've decided that I'm going to start going through my stuff. I need to pare down. I now now that we're all stuck indoors, I've been stuck indoors with my collection of stuff, and it's like you know what? I know there's people out there that are going to enjoy it more than me, so I'm I'm slowly cataloging them to uh, send out to folks to find out what they want. But that's that's another conversation we'll have. Um, do you have a goal? For your collection, is it sort of like mm, build it up one day, create my own museum? You want to charge admission to the house, or uh, is it... no? But but everyone who does visit my studio is like, this is a museum, <laughs> or this place is so nerdy. <laughs> uh, there's no goal. I, I don't say that there's a goal. Um, it's just stuff that amuses me, and using eBay as a coping mechanism. No, I, oh God, eBay has gotten so much of my money recently. So just talking about just the kind of the, the full view and understanding of, of comics. Um, uh, let's, let's kind of bring that back to the focus of your work, less than the history of, but uh, kind of your work with comics. Uh, Robert, what's it like working on books where the main character's likeness is based on actual people versus say Archie? That's, it's, it's always tricky. It's always difficult. It's always a few issues before I feel like I've found the person and found the likeness. Um, it's odd. It's sometimes you have to go through uh, the licensors and the, the, the actors have to approve things. X-Files. Everything had to be approved by Gillian Anderson and David Duchovny. Mm-hmm. Um, same with Elvira. Uh, it's it's an odd thing. You so you're so you're not just doing it. You're not just trying to get the license, but you're also trying to capture them in a way that that the person wants to be captured. Mm. Was um, there a likeness so that was that was really difficult? You know, the first couple Colin Baker covers I did for Doctor Who. Mm-hmm. Um, not necessarily happy with. I didn't quite get it. Once I got him, became one of my favorite doctors to draw. But, but yeah, that did take a couple times, and I'm just like, ugh, yeah, they, they make me cringe now. Um, <laughs> but just before I got into comics, I spent about five years working in trading cards and sketch cards. And when you take on a sketch card job, they'll send you like a hundred cards, and you have to do them very quickly, weeks, month or so. So you have to do like 100, 150 illustrations very quickly. And a lot of these were based on licensed sets. So Hammer Horror, uh, Doctor Who, I did some Doctor Who cards. I did um, the CSI, all of the CSI shows. So it was a lot of likenesses, very fast. And I had to learn how to do these quickly and how to get them right and how to get them. The likeness is strong enough that they were approved. And that was a great training ground for... Uh, the comics I'd be doing over the next decade, where I, I I did not I did not get into licensed comics by choice. It just kept ended up being being pushed at me, and now I love it. 
but yeah, uh, getting the likenesses is always tricky. Well, there's a really successful TV series based on a project you're, you're very much a part of. We're talking about Sabrina here. What's it like finding out about this series and what did you think of the finished project? Well, first of all, I love the finished project. I, I, I love the show. Um, like every, like I don't have much inside cause you know, that's all businessy type stuff. I don't know what's happening. Uh, there, there are always rumors that the next season, season five will be happening. I, I'm hoping it's true cause I wanted to continue forever, but I love the show. Um, it was nearly a movie. What? Uh, wow. About a year or two before the show, it was very close to being a movie. So we had gone through, uh, all of that with a movie producer. I don't know how much of that is out there, so I'm not going to say who. But it was it was right. it was within days of being signed and announced as being a movie, like days. And and then I think that I I I think they had a movie that flopped uh, that weekend. It was a a film with a, with a, a woman lead based on a property, and it flopped. And I think they just got scared. Gotcha. I have no insider knowledge. It's just what I always kind of suspected. So that nearly happened. So, so we went through all this once and then the show kind of came out of nowhere. I, I knew something was up because they, they warned me, Hey, there's a thing that's going to be announced. But even I didn't know the show was coming to, to CW and then Netflix before Annie. And, and then they asked me to be a part of it and do the opening credits which is nice. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, you know, it's, I think the opening credits became available before the show did. Um, it kind of as a teaser and uh, it t- looks really good. And I hate to say this and it, it, it pains me greatly to admit this to you. I still haven't watched the show. Um, it's been one of those shows where I've every October, I'm like, this is going to be the time where I sit down and I watch it, but it is a hundred percent, not the kind of show that my wife would watch, uh, which means that mm-hmm. I have to watch it by myself, which is fine. Um, but it, it also means I have to carve out time to, to find a chance to like, and, and watching an entire series of a, a program, a lot more difficult than a 90 minute movie. Um, but I've heard no, and, and no worries. I am not offended by this. <laughs> no, I know, but just kind of like, Oh, I really want to be able to say yes. Cause I'm such a huge fan of the book. There are so, there's so much of my palette and, and some of my designs that show up in the show. It's, it's, it's nice to see that level of uh, appreciation to the, to the source material. And that's, that's Roberto. That's Roberto keeping the, the look correct. Well, and not to mention Dr. Who connection, right? So you got Michelle Gomez in there, which is, mm-hmm. that's gotta be pretty cool. That is so cool. The entire cast just blows my mind. It is one of the best ensemble cats I've ever seen. Lucy Davis, Miranda Otto, yeah. Michelle Gomez. Seriously, it is. I want to say Lucy Davis and uh, Michelle Gomez were announced within a week or so of each other. And my reaction to the announcement that they would be Hilda and and Madam Satan, I can only describe it as a happy panic attack. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, oh, there is a joyous pressure on my heart. That is because it, it's Lucy Davis. And, and Michelle Gomez, and it, it is just, and Richard Coyle, it is just mm. appallingly well cast. 
And they've done marvelously with it. Well, speaking of uh, Michelle Gomez and Doctor Who, um, let's talk about that a little bit. When did you first start watching Doctor Who and what did you think? I was around four or five. Um, it was uh, with Tom Baker uh, being shown on PBS in America. My brother sat me down in front of it. I was four or five. And he goes, I think you'll like this. <laughs> and he was right. I, I can't even remember which episode it was. But it was, it was probably a Tom Baker, Liz Slayton. And I was hooked. I was hooked immediately. Haven't stopped watching it since. That's I'm, brilliant. Yeah, most people's uh, first Doctor is their favorite. Is that the same with for you? Well, I love Tom Baker. I, I actually think Patrick Troughton might be, might be my favorite. That's cool. Why? It's, it's hard to quantify. The way he plays it, both whimsical and dark, really appeals to me. I mean, when, when Matt Smith came along and he had that same kind of quirky, whimsical, but could turn on a dime kind of a thing, um, that really appealed to me too. And, uh, uh, but Troughton, I had seen in The Five Doctors, and I was like, oh, I, I, I like this doctor. <laughs> this mm. doctor this doctor is good. And sometime when I was around 10 or so, our local PBS got to the end of where the Peter Davidson stories had been released. Um, and they started over with An Unearthly Child. Hmm. And, and just watching through what still existed, Unearthly Child, the Daleks, um, through a handful of the travels that still existed. I, I was just, just taken with this doctor. Um, I, I still remember watching, and I had to be 10, 11 maybe, watching the war games. Mm. And just amazed by this astoundingly long serial. It's such a good story. Mm-hmm. Every time I go back and revisit it, it, you know, it always feels like it's going to be a massive time commitment, and it's over in a day. Mm-hmm. Uh, cause it's, it's impossible to pull yourself away from. And I'm, I'm, I gotta say, I'm just super jealous, both of you guys. And I think I say this every single time someone tells me that they were introduced <laughs> to Dr. Who as a kid. I wish I had had that sort of influence as a, as a child. Cause I think it would have done me nothing but good. You know, nothing but good, but then also the heartbreak of, I grew up in a very small rural town. Mm. nobody I knew knew what Doctor Who was. There, there were no kids on the play. I mean, they were all playing Transformers and G.I. Joe. There was right. no one who wanted to play Daleks. I'm a five-year-old kid, and, and, and there, was no, there was no merch. Right. There was, there was, there was nothing to, to suggest that, that my favorite show existed until uh, 1983, the Doctor Who technical manual book came out. Mm. And I saw it sometime maybe a month before my birthday that year, 1983. And I saw it, and, and all I wanted for my birthday was this book, The Doctor Who Technical Manual, despite being slightly crap. Oh, <laughs> I wanted. Because it was the totem. It said my favorite show existed. Yes. Like, ah, oh, and I still have, I, I have bought a better copy, but I still have my tattered copy. Oh, I My love falling it. apart held together with butterfly clips copy. You know, I, I think about this with young kids and fandom and the internet and just the, the fact that if you want something, if you want to watch something, it, it's, 
if you have the means, if you have access to the internet, it's probably only a day away as long as you have the money and the, the, the internet connection. And if you want uh, a toy or a bit of merchandise, it's probably only a week away if you want it. You know, like it's, it boggles the mind, you know, as a comic fan, clearly remember just how panicked you would be when you would see something that had a comic book character on it. Cause it was so few and far between, mm-hmm. you know, like I think it was Burger King or McDonald's had, had Spider-Man and his amazing friend, happy meals where the boxes were 3d comics and you would get these glasses and you could watch. Like I remember, oh, yeah, I remember buying that. that just for those happy meals because finding comic book stuff was almost impossible. It seems ridiculous to think, especially today, but finding anything like that, I still, I was cleaning up my stuff. I still have an ink pen that I got from tons of toys in 1984. It just has Batman on it running towards camera, like running towards the pen. Like, and, and I, I've held on to that stupid pen for, <laughs> for multiple decades just because I remember how much joy having anything with Batman on it. Like now it's inconceivable that you, you couldn't find something with Batman on it. Yeah. So, yeah, I, 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 I get that. Well, I remember the dark days before 1989 when you could not find Batman things. Yeah. Uh, and then it exploded and there were comic book shirts in just regular department stores. I remember getting mad at someone who was wearing a Batman shirt that depicted a scene from the killing joke and they didn't know what the killing joke was. And I like being like a, a early teen. No, I wasn't even a teenager at the time. Uh, it was a preteen, like trying to explain the killing joke to people, mm-hmm. which was probably came off as really weird and really disturbing. <laughs> well, yes. <laughs> I want to. I want to jump back. <laughs> Speaking about both Doctor Who and comics, um, because uh, you did these great covers for IDW. Um, is that something? Is we know you're a fan. We know you love comics. We know you love Doctor Who. Were the covers something that you were asked to work on, or is that a job that you pursued? Um, when IDW got the Doctor Who license, uh, it was a while. Um, I actually knew. Uh, Editor-in-Chief Chris Ryle, I knew him from a message board a handful of years before. So I was friends with with someone at IDW. And Doctor Who comics were announced. And this weirdly protective of Doctor Who, in spite of myself, part of my brain said, it's like, oh, well, I'm not British. I shouldn't go after it. Yeah. (laughs) Let let it be a Brit. And the, the comics started coming out, and I'm like, I've been watching this since I was four years old. It, it is as much a part of my life as it is any, any artist from anywhere in the world. It, it's, it's as meaningful to me as anyone else. Um, so, so after a handful of issues came out, I, I wrote uh, Chris Ryle. And I said, hey, I love Doctor Who. If there is any covers or interiors, anything, you know, I, I'd, I'd, I'd like to do it. And that was so fortuitous because he needed someone to do a cover that week. Oh my God. It, it was an emergency. He, he was going to go search someone out. And, and I known him for years. We, 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 I did some uh, character sketches for our book in the early 2000s that, that we were talking about doing. 
so he knew my work. He'd seen it on uh, Facebook and stuff that, you know, I kind of knew what I was doing, even though I'm still not sure myself. Uh, he, he had, so he knew, and he's just like, okay, I need, I need two covers. Can you have one of them done by the end of the week? And it was for Grant Morrison's Doctor Who's issue one and two. Right. <laughs> so I'm like, yeah, I can do that. And I never, I never considered doing covers. Like even, even when I was a, even when I was a little teenager, uh, making, making my own photo uh, copied comics uh, and dreaming about being a comics pro when I, when I'm at that age, one of the things I never wanted to do because I never thought I was right for it was covers. I, and I was probably right at the time, but I thought, Oh, my design sense isn't right for this. This is, this is for the Mignolas. That, that's not my gig. Leave, leave it to Adam Hughes, leave it to Mignola, leave it to um, Sam Keith mm-hmm. and all these great nineties cover artists. Like that's, that's their deal. That's never going to be me. And then the doctor who covered gig comes along. And I'm like, well, yes, of course I'm doing this. Uh, and, and, and I'm actually fairly fast. I'm, I'm a pretty fast artist. So I had the covers done uh, way sooner than a week, you know, within a couple of days. And then that, that specific book, and I think that, that led me down the path of, of being a cover artist. That's ridiculous. So wait, you're saying Doctor Who is your first cover? There was one a little earlier. Um, for a book called Big Bang. Uh, it, it was published at Image, and it was, I think, self-published by the time I did it. But, but yeah, as a cover artist, I, I want to say that was my big first pro break. That's amazing. Yeah, that's awesome. And it was Doctor Who. It, it was, it was really cool. Me. Do you still have the, um, the piece? Was it, did you do it digitally, or uh, was this a, um, an actual... Um, uh, I still ha- I I do still have it, and I I don't work digitally. Everything I do is on is on paper. I didn't think you did, but I wasn't sure when you if you need something in a week done. I didn't know if that if that was necessary, but yeah, that's cool. Nope, I just sit down with my brushes and I get to work. I love watching you work. You stopped. That's right, I stopped you. You're being dragged along. What are they people? What? Just leaving the museum. I heard some shouting in the distance. There were police cars around, but didn't you feel it? What? Yeah. Anything? No. Perhaps some done. A few done. Full of love didn't. It was what I was afraid of. The thing got a huge intake of energy, and only it's the hull itself, the substance of it. This time, it was almost alive and. Well, uh, Robert, one of the things we do here is um, we ask somebody on who has a uh, works with Doctor Who or has an interest in Doctor Who, and then we also ask them to talk about another show that they really love. So uh, tell us which show you picked and why you picked it. Well, I'm here to tell you all about the 700 Club. <laughs> <laughs> no! Praise the Lord. Have you heard the good news? No. So it is a, a another British show, a precursor to Doctor Who. It is Quatermass and the Pit. You amazing music. Uh, <laughs> so why, why pick this one? I am a huge fan of Quatermass. I'm a huge fan of Nigel Neal, the writer. 
Uh, it is, and uh, we were talking about my collection earlier. A, a large focus of my collection is on Quatermass and Nigel Neal ephemera. Uh, and why Quatermass? It's kind of a, a laser focus of everything I love. It's sci-fi, it's horror, it's 1960s British television. It's uh, a mystery. It's astoundingly well written and well shot. And it's to this day, frightening. So when did you first see this? Because this is, this is, uh, I want to talk, I want to kind of in a moment discuss the importance of this show in the history of British television uh, and its amazing reach and an influence. But when did you see this for the first time? Because clearly this is an important part of your fandom. So what was, what was your first introduction to Quatermass? My first introduction to Quatermass was in the early nineties, uh, my brother and I were taping like, like TBS or TNT's like block of music videos on a Friday night. <laughs> so so you know, before MTV, well, our, our tiny little town did not have MTV. So to see music videos, you had to set up a VCR and, and record like an entire night of like Friday night videos. Mm -hmm. So we tape that and we're going through to see if there's like anything that we enjoy the Cramps or Morrissey or, or, or something. And at the very end of the tape, uh, a movie starts and it's Quatermass in the Pit, the Hammer film. Oh. And it's, it's the workmen digging uh, the new underground and they find the skull. And just as they crack open the wall and you see the skeleton of the the, the the Neanderthal homunculus with the giant skull, that is where the tape cut out. No! And it ran out of the tape. <laughs> and it was, uh, it was the American version, so the title of it was Five Million Years to Earth. I didn't know about Quatermass. It didn't reach that part of the film, but that haunted me. Like, what is this thing? I need to find this thing. And it was, it was pre-DVD. It was pre-being able to find things anywhere. Uh, and it was years before... I'm trying to think my my reintroduction to Nigel Neal. Stone tape. Oh, I love the stone tape. Uh, <laughs> love it all. Um, I'm trying to think. I can't. I can't remember what led me to find the DVDs. I think I was just doing a like, what British sci-fi can I find? And and I found it, it must have been one of the Don Levy movies. Um, one of the first two Hammer films. Yeah, it was. I think, I think it was the first, the first Hammer Quatermass. And I, I was just taken with, with the sci-fi, the horror, the noir of it. Uh, and I tracked down everything. And, and by that point, DVDs were a thing, and it was easy to get things region-free. I, I had had a region-free player since they came out. I made sure I, I had a region-free player because of my love of British TV. Yeah, absolutely. I need, to, I need to watch Bottom and The Young Ones. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I found, I started piecing together the collection of all of the Nigel Neal stuff. And I was just taken with how brilliant they all were. And how influential. And you see the things that were stolen for Doctor Who. Or oh, my God. That. Along with um, 
uh, Day of the Triffids. Um, yes. John Wyndham's Day of the Triffids. The first time I watched the Walking, the first episode of The Walking Dead, I'm just like, what the hell? <laughs> this is just the <laughs> opening of Day of the Triffids. <laughs> you know, so I was talking about like movies that I love that were clearly remakes. Day of the Triffids, still mm-hmm. haven't seen a good remake of that. And uh, uh, though I've heard people men- do the exact same thing and mention the, the intro to The Walking Dead, but go ahead, mm-hmm. please. Rile, uh, you know, rail away. The, the, the most recent Day of the Triffids I wasn't fond of. Like really well cast, but it just didn't, it just didn't capture it for me. Uh, I like the, and, and we're definitely off the Nigel Neal Quatermass train here, but um, the, uh, the 1981 BBC series yeah. of Day of the Triffids, really, really good. Uh, just came it out is. on Blu-ray. Actually, yeah, I've, I've got to pick that one up because I've only seen bits of that one. Um, oh, such a good that, story. That's another one I saw in an early age. Mm-hmm. I, I, I might have been, been in middle school when, when that came out and, and it was shown in America. It's a, another favorite of mine. Uh, the, the British science fiction horror mix is just something that's always appealed to me. And that, that might be the, the Doctor Who being introduced at an early age sort of forming who I am. But that stuff always just makes me happy. Uh, but back to Quatermass. <laughs> what was the question? Well, actually, I have, a, I have a question for you on this one because, you know, we asked you to choose one um, mm. and you gave us Quatermass in the pit. And now I, I understand mm. a little bit now since you were introduced to it as a movie, but there are two Quatermass series prior to the yeah. pit. Why not suggest one of those? What is it about uh, the third installment that, that kind of really appealed to you? It is unquestionably the best. Uh, but the the first uh, story, the Quatermass Experiment, only two issues still ex- or two episodes still exist. Uh, so that one's that one's a hard one to gauge. Uh, we mostly have the movie uh, to go by there, and the second one, not uh, I I like it and and I watch it every few years. But the Quatermass in that one, uh, John Robinson, I believe his name is, um, was a last minute replacement. Quatermass actors have a habit of dying. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so in the, the Quatermass experiment, they're getting ready to do Quatermass 2. The actor dies. And, and they had to get a very fast replacement. Uh, and I believe the same happened on Quatermass in the Pit. And this is where we get uh, Andrew Morell, who's a pretty great Quatermass. He is. Is he your favorite? Probably. Uh, definitely a tie between he and uh, Andrew Keir of the Quatermass in the Pit film. Both of yeah. those... Just superb in the part, as is John Mills in in the final Quatermass in 1979. I've I've always liked his portrayal of the hmm. the beaten down, sort of defeated Quatermass. <laughs> Brent, had you seen Quatermass prior to this? Uh, well, I'd heard of it through Doctor Who, so I tried the movie version of this story but I don't remember a thing about it. I, there's been lots of Quatermass movies and shows. I even found one with. Uh, David Tennant on Amazon Prime, yeah. but I haven't mm-hmm. watched it yet. So it really must have made a huge impact on British culture. But I would like to watch the movie again because although this version was written very well, um, the budget was not so great. So seeing the movie version may be better visually for me. I, I know, Drew, you um, did a speed version of it this morning. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah. I, I want to talk about the movie, but I want to save that for a little bit because I want to talk about this one. Um, so I'm, I watched, I started watching this a couple of years ago and instantly fell in love with it. But for some, I, I couldn't tell you why. For some reason, I never got past episode four of the six episodes. Um, and it's, it's, it's riveting. It's a riveting show. It's a little long. It, it runs a little slowly. And, but that's sort of BBC television yeah. from the time. But I never got past the reveal after episode three. I never mm. watched episode four. So like we, we find the, the aliens and then, and by the way, spoilers for Quatermass in the Pit, you know, cause we can't, we can't truly appreciate this without yeah. talking about it. So I'm, you know, it's, it's on, there's a number of ways you can watch this daily motion. I'm going to recommend yeah. if you can't find the DVD, because in the States, it's very difficult to find. There is a new Blu-ray that has come out recently. Apparently it's gorgeous, but thanks to COVID, uh, it was not going to be able to ship to me until um, October. So when I rewatched it, it was via uh, daily motion, which is, you know, good enough. Um, But what blows me away about this is that after watching a couple of episodes, I decided to do some research because I, I was kind of curious because it really has a stage quality, like, mm-hmm. like it, you're watching a Broadway show. And I'll be damned, and it should have been should have been obvious right from the start. This went out live. Yes. This is a, a, a science fiction television show where 80% of it was recorded live and then they would cut in film bits for scene changes in the same way that Dr. Who did it. But what was it? 1958. So it's already five years before Dr. Who. And that's the third installment of Quatermass. It's the third Quatermass, but it's the way all British TV was done. And there's, there were actually several more Nigel Neal serials that he did. Like he did like one a year. Right. So there's three Quatermass, but there's also uh, the 1984, uh, uh, H.G. Wells' uh, 19, or Orwell's 1984. Right. So there's an adaptation of that he did. There's, there's one about the abominable snowman that no longer exists, but Hammer turned it into a film. So right. we have Peter Cushing fighting the abominable snowman. So he was doing one of these every year as a, a live production with effects and monsters. Right. And this is, the Quatermass is the first, uh, sorry, I'm going to geek out here. Quatermass is like the first science fiction TV show aimed at adults. Yes. I mean, what? Like, I'm, you and, look at the history on Wikipedia of the history of the BBC, and it's like BBC starts, uh, these events, you know, coronations and live matches, and then it's like off the air for the war, and then it comes back. And within like six years of coming back from the war, they're making a groundbreaking science fiction. The, the cultural impact of Quatermass in the 50s for, the, for England is massive because 1952, you have the Queen's coronation. Right. Uh, Queen Elizabeth. And everyone bought a TV for this because it was going to be the first televised coronation uh, of, of the Queen. So, like, everyone bought a TV or, like, everyone on the block had one that they could communally use. And then 1953, the first Quatermass comes along. And it blows people's minds. It, it was too horrific for the time. They, weren't, they almost weren't ready. Uh, and, and even more so with 
uh, Nigel Neal's adaptation of 1984, mm. which raised such ire in, in the country. <laughs> like, yeah. like, is this TV going too far? You know, the suggestion of rats eating faces and all of those right. things. Because they, they play it as horror. Mm-hmm. Like there, there were talks of do we censor British television? Do we do we do we keep this away from from the people? And it leaks out that the Queen watched it and loved it. And from that point, there was no talk of censoring television. That's right. Yes, yes, right. Because the Queen specifically spoke up in favor of it. Yes, that's insane. I want to read a quote uh, by Mark Gatiss real quick um, that I, I uncovered in 2006 to so the Guardian. You can find this on Wikipedia, but. Um, Gatiss wrote, what sci-fi piece of the last 50 years doesn't owe Neil a huge debt? The ancient invasion of Quatermass in the pit casts a huge shadow. It's brilliant blending of superstition, witchcraft, ghosts, and a story of a five million year old Martian invasion is copper bottomed genius. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, friend of the podcast and, and guest from only a couple of months back, um, Kyle Anderson wrote, uh, when the, the Blu-ray came out uh, of the 67 film, wrote a really interesting uh, article on the enduring legacy of Quatermass on, on things like the X-Files and Doctor Who. And it's like, I didn't understand. I didn't truly appreciate Quatermass uh, until this month. I mean, I'm kind of, I feel like a, a religious convert. Um, you know, we don't have time to go into the ramifications of this show on this episode, uh, the true revocation, but believe you me, I'm going to be getting in touch with you to, to chat more about this um, because I'm, I'm ready to do the deep dive. I really am. Uh, would you guys say that uh, Dr. Who may have not have been made without the success of this show? Oh my God. It's, it's so obvious. It's so evident. <laughs> yeah. It is a definite evolution one to the other. Um, yeah. I, I don't know that the, six-part sci-fi serial would exist without yeah. Spider-Man. I mean, the, the entire format of Doctor Who uh, that also extends to like Sapphire and Steel and, and all the other mm-hmm. uh, like mm-hmm. time slip and all of them, the things that came after. You don't get those without the Quatermass experiment and, yeah. and Nigel Neal. Oh, just, you know, and, and it, it, it was kind of occurring to me uh, and I just can see just even the movie, there's some, there's some, legacy to the movie but just to go back to the show um i was like wow there's there's three different quatermass like the actor was played by a different uh, the character was played by a different actor every single time i mean mm-hmm. we're never going to see something like that again there's never going to be a show in which the entire legacy of the program is based off of someone's decision to recast the actor and make it a yeah. part i mean it's clearly regeneration is part of like this is an effect from regeneration it's amazing so quatermass was a time lord <laughs> uh, <laughs> i mean it it certainly makes sense like i think you could argue that in fact have they done you would know this robert have they done quatermass crossovers um maybe in comic or i'm sure there's fan fiction because there's fan fiction of everything oh, yeah. um but is there a Quatermass there's a great, crossover there's for anything? Of, uh, there's a great piece of fan art by Doctor Who artist Dan McDade. Okay. Uh, Dan did a great piece a couple of years ago with uh, Andrew Keir. Uh, okay, there, there are a few subtle non-crossovers officially where it's not actually a crossover, but they kind of stuck it in. Uh, in um, Remembrance of the Daleks, 
they mentioned uh, the, the British experimental rocket proof and Professor Bernard. Uh, they oh do God. mention, yeah, there, there is a Quatermass reference there. Um, Bernard at the rocket group. Um, what else? Mark Gatiss wrote a, uh, one of the new, the Virgin New Adventures that is a Quatermass pastiche with the seventh doctor and, and, and another, uh, another professor. What was that? Nightshade? I think it's called oh, Nightshade. Nightshade. Yeah. 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 I think so. Mm-hmm. I haven't read that one, but I, I have it. <laughs> <laughs> Almost finished with that collection too. Uh, that's brilliant. I want three feet and grab it off my shelf. Yes, it was night shift. <laughs> I want to say a uh, big finish did a, a version of Nightshade also. Really? No. Okay, I gotta jump on that. I could be wrong, but I think they did. Uh, Gatiss, and, um, Mark Gatiss also did. Oh, what was his audio series? Oh, he won because he's done a couple. He, he did a radio series. Um, I'm blanking on it. I'm blanking on it. It was a. Uh, he, he did a, a full. Quatermass kind of pastiche, like three seasons. Was it the nineteen the Quatermass mem- um, memoirs or? No, no, no. That was the thing Nigel Neal did. Um, okay. No, I, but, but not, um, Mark Gatiss has like three seasons of a, it, it kind of feels like an ode to uh, the Pertwee Doctor years and Quatermass all at once. Gotcha. Oh, no, like just um, Quatermass and Breen's relationship immediately is like, oh, yeah, that feels like not, not, um, it didn't feel like, uh, part we, you know, like that, the, that quitter mass isn't very, he's more of a boffin. Uh, he's well, no, actually, no, I take that back. He kind of stands up to Breen in a Pertwee esque way, but it definitely felt like, uh, Lethbridge Stewart and, 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 uh, the doctor that, mm-hmm. that kind of combative, especially say something like, um, Silurians, <laughs> Silurians. Mm-hmm. That combat sort of, it feels like you can't do this. Of course we can do this. You know, that kind of the ending, but. Mm -hmm. If you definitely watch the web of fear and the invasion, you see it's the introduction of the brigadier, very Mm Breen-like and the way that the military is very similar to. uh, Yeah. Both of the, you'd see Derek Sherwin definitely feels like he, he was influenced by, it seems like everyone was influenced. I was reading something in another article saying like, yeah, Stephen King, was fully aware of this show, as was John Carpenter. Both of them have, have cited specifically Quatermass in the Pit um, as something that has influenced their work. It's, yeah, it's... Well, well, Carpenter's uh, Halloween 3 uh-huh. is very much... I mean, Nigel Neal came in to do a draft of the script. No way! Uh, mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, n- not the finished final draft, but, but one of the drafts in the middle. Uh, they brought in Nigel Neal, and it... Like I saw that before I saw any of the Quatermass stuff, mm-hmm. and and it has that same, and, and apparently it was stuff that was added because they love Nigel Neal, not the stuff Nigel Neal added to it. But uh, Halloween Three combines science fiction and horror, and the supernatural in the same way that Quatermass does, and I saw that when I was a, a very young, and and that just resonated with me, in the same way that Doctor Who would, and and. And Quatermass does. I'm going to admit something to you now. I do feel like I'm doing this a lot. I have not seen the third Halloween film. Uh, and I'm, uh, I've written it down. That will change this month. <laughs> well, it's, based off it's of that recommendation. <laughs> it's the one that's different. Everybody, right. like, I think when this originally was, when Halloween was, here's a tangent. Uh, when Halloween was originally um, thought of, they were going to do each movie as a different, uh, 
story, like an, an anthology mm-hmm. series of movies. And that's what three was. And everybody was like, Hey, where's Michael Myers? So that's, yeah. Yeah. yeah that's what happened. And it's, and it's a shame because I think Halloween three is my favorite. It's, it's not the slasher film that, that the others are, but it's this super weird. I mean, if you love Doctor Who, I think, I think you'll dig it, but it's very weird. And it's, it's mysticism and witchcraft and science fiction and not all of it makes sense. <laughs> but <laughs> I love it. Let's do tangent. Um, I, I am running, I'm about to start an RPG session. I've been doing a lot of those over zoom recently with players and we're doing a game called kids on bikes, which is taking the, the kids on bikes trope. That's you know familiar from Goonies and it and ET and such. Um, and we had our, zero session last night and i asked them you know what do you want the the game we're gonna do two sessions what do you want it to be rated what genre do you want and what era do you want it to take place in and they said we really want supernatural sci-fi could we do late 60s early 70s uh and we'll do a pg-13 to make it feel kind of like one of those movies that you got away with as a kid and uh, it's going to take place in the pacific northwest in a log small logging town that has uh, a dark history and as they're explaining this i'm like this this feels like Quatermass meets Gravity Falls. I'm really excited about this. Yeah. So, yeah, it's going to be really cool. Also, something you might want to look at for reference is something called Children of the Stones. If you oh, haven't seen God. it. Oh, yeah. Are you kidding right. me? That terrified me as a child. <laughs> oh, that haunting, wailing music. No, Children of the Stones, back when, and I think we talked about this season one with Nicole Mazza, um, uh, when Nickelodeon first came over and they they just filled the air with the best scary children's <laughs> British programming. And we got like uh, all of that stuff. They called it on the third eye, right? Like I think that was the programming. They called it third eye, but it was it was Children of the Stones. Uh, what was the one that Peter Davison was the cowboy that, that they, they redid, Fox redid a couple of years back. Oh, Tomorrow People. Tomorrow People. Like yes. that was a part of that programming and it was just horrifying. Yeah. I know. I, yeah. Children of the stones. Love it. Yeah. I'm a big fan of British children's sci-fi and horror mm. uh, stuff like uh, stuff like that. And uh, time slip. Yes. Which was a competitor to Dr. Who at one point. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love that kind of stuff. Yeah, I do too. And I didn't realize I loved it until I started um, kind of combing YouTube for those things that reminded me of my childhood. Like I, I, I had these single images in my head and I didn't have a name to place it. And in the last 10 years, I've been kind of piecing together what I loved as a kid. And it turns out that uh, my palette was entirely influenced by British television, like everything, everything. Like, like you were talking about the only kid on the playground wanting to play Doctor Who. Like I, I wanted to play uh, stuff that, you know, like sad. One of my favorite superheroes as a kid was banana man. Um, (laughs) (laughs) It's that Thames quality of programming that sort of, that was on Nickelodeon. That was once we got a TV, that's sort of the kind of the thing that I wanted to to spend more time in. Let's talk a little bit more about um, Quittermass in the Pit because I feel like we've talked around it and talked about how good it is, but without really talking about, let's talk about the characters because this is an ensemble cast. Um, Quatermass being a a sort of boffin 
isn't going to be a traditional, this is not a traditional action story. The, the guys that you would think would be the heroes, like the military, the, the, the young military mm-hmm. guys turn out to not be. Um, were there any particular characters that resonated with you in the story? Actually, Brent, because I, I, what did you think? Like, was there anybody in this story that kind of like, uh, Quittermass included, that, that really kind of like stood out for you? Um, well, I really liked it. Uh, I, but I feel like this story mainly focuses on the story rather than the characters. So I didn't right. really see any development, but I did like it. And I, I, I liked Quatermass himself. And I liked that uh, Colonel Breen was defiant and non-believing until the very end when he obviously saw it was real, but it was too late. Yeah. Those two characters stood out. Yeah. How about you, Robert? Is there, were, I mean, clearly Quatermass is a, is a great character, but uh, is he, he's kind of your main focus? Uh, uh, Quatermass is great. Um, Rooney, uh, yeah. Rooney stands out as really the, the thrust of a lot of the story. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, by this point, it's the, the third Quatermass story. So they, they give a good deal over to, to Rooney's quest uh, to find the truth. But but a character that stands out for me is something stands out because she is so different than the characters in TV and sci-fi at that time. Yes. And and that that's assistant Barbara Judd, who when when she goes off on her own, they they like, oh, she's off getting her hair done or something. And no, she's she's doing research. She's yeah. she's getting things done and demands respect from the military, the other the other scientists. Um in a way that I don't really see that many women in sci-fi of that era getting. I mean, she's not simply a damsel. And they, they do kind of sideline her in the last episode. Yeah. Uh, with, with a very unsportsmanlike uh, sock to the jaw. Uh, <laughs> but, but, yeah, the, movie, the movie's really bad about it. Yeah, but, but I almost, I like her in the film version where she's just walking through the desolate streets Mm-hmm. Martian madness in her eyes. Yes, it's like the Barbara Shelley take on that character is is amazing, but in really? the show it is it is so startling that they give her so much agency mm-hmm. uh, in in a time when you really didn't see much of that. And I think that comes down to Nigel Neal. Uh, I think there is a respect for women in Nigel Neal's work uh, that shines through, uh, certainly in the Stone Tape. Uh, where, where the main character is the only one who has any sense and is ignored by all the men. And it is, it is such a treaty on toxic masculinity uh, being the be all end all of business uh, when it just leads you to disaster. Yeah. She was amazing. Um, I, for me, this show, I mean, while Quatermass is neat and, and the effect with Breen, I was just kind of blown away by how scientists um, kind of steered this and like Judd in particular, though it didn't realize her first name was Barbara until I watched the 67 film because they, they eventually referred to her as Judd the entire time. Um, She's so laser focused on what she needs to do. And even being like psychically uh, having, projected these horrible images like she she becomes the crux for so much of this and um rooney is what an amazing actor i'm gonna mispronounce this name i think it's it's Kecklinder, like cec it's Kecklinder. great actor like immediately 
the stage presence is fantastic. And when I found out this was going out live, I was blown away. I really want to learn more about uh, the kind of the history of their, uh, their career because dynamic, charismatic, interesting, uh, you really feel the relationship, his passion for the, for the, his work, but his relationship with Quater Mass, his ability to work with his staff. Mm-hmm. Um, I, there's only one aspect of this show that the, the program that I didn't really love. And that's the fact that he also has the brain capacity to create a machine that allows you to visualize things that are in your mind mm-hmm. feels so out of left field. And I know that so much of the story depends on that device I just wish that there had been another character that had done so because yeah. it feels so doctor-esque, which is a sort of like, well, you're a, you're a brilliant anthropologist and paleontologist. Uh, what else do you do? Well, I've been toying around with this machine that allows you to see what's <laughs> in the mind's eye. It's like, wow, that's, um, <laughs> yes, we're, <laughs> I mean, there's amazing military applications and this could change. Well, let's face it everything even even at the time where like television you had to go out live no no you can you can record things you see in your brain like we don't have to have movies anymore you just have to think about it it just it's such a weird i I don't know how you could have progressed the story forward in the way that you did you know maybe maybe the psychic projections were so strong simply touching um like being near film your it's like you know, strange this film was supposed to be blank a moment ago and now there's something on it well let's take a look and see what it is like you know something like that might have been a little bit more effective um with the way the story works because it feels like this kind of leap in technology is so far advanced but um, it, it is the oddest part yeah yeah everything and that's saying something but it, it is it is an oddity yeah um, but, and I, I got to say, even with the 67 film, that character, the actor who plays the character uh, in the film also really, I think the casting, they did a great job with both. Uh, mm-hmm. And I'm going to go ahead and say, uh, I like the 67 Quatermass. Um, I thought he, I think that Scottish hint of that accent, uh, he's a little bit more dynamic, a little bit more quick to move because you kind of have to be in a film uh, when you only have 90 minutes as opposed to, uh, what is it, about three hours for the, the TV series. Mm-hmm. Oh but, yeah, Andrew Keir is a fantastic Quatermass. I yeah. love that film. It's really, really good. Um, one of the other things too, we were talking about it going out live. This came out in uh, December of 58 uh, to, and continued to play until January of 59. And it didn't really occur to me when I first saw that fact. But then you know, this thing that the UK does at Christmas time, their kind of tradition is to not in October, but at Christmas to talk about ghost stories. Like that's mm-hmm. like, this is a science fiction ghost story. It's such a weird combination. I know. And it's, it's it so works for me. I, I, that mix of supernatural and ghosts and sci-fi I have no idea why that hits my brain in just the right way, mm-hmm. but it does. Yeah. They don't um, normally mix well, but it, it does here, I think. Yeah. And I don't think I've ever seen it mix quite so successfully. And it True. feels like when I've any other time I've seen it, um, I mean, Dr. Who does it right. Like, you know, Dr. Who tries to 
come up with a scientific explanation for supernatural events with the exception of psychic activity. It's kind of a weird thing that psychic phenomenon is okay in the universe of Doctor Who, but ghosts aren't ever explained up until you know this year. Anyway, um, this last season. But uh, yeah, and I, I, it almost feels like that's a direct correlation to Quater Mass as well with the, mm-hmm. the pentacle and the psychic projections. Um, uh, Robert, I'm going to guess that you're also a Cthulhu uh, fan um, to, to some extent, Lovecraft, uh, not of the individual, because you know clearly hot mess uh, and very problematic. Yeah. But but the um, but I, the I mythos. Actually, I I came to that stuff through people like uh, Mignola and Hellboy, uh-huh. and and the people who had loved it. I actually haven't read much. Lovecraft. I, I, I just don't care about it. Like, 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 like oh, yeah, I've, I've got a couple books on my shelf. I'll get to them one day. No, I probably won't. He's kind of terrible. But so have you not read Call of Cthulhu? I have not. Okay. Uh, I watched, so again, I watched the, the movie for the first time this morning, about a, basically about 30 minutes before we started recording. I finished up. The ending is... It feels like a direct homage to the ending of the short story, The Call of Cthulhu. Uh, and I will spoil no more uh, about it, but I, I looked at it immediately went, no, no, this is, this. it feels like they went, no, yeah, we're going to do this. Uh, because it's very different. Uh, well, it's relatively different from how they end the, the TV episode. Uh, but I, that I won't spoil because the ending of this is, is took me by surprise. And I think it, um, I think it will take listeners by surprise too if they haven't uh, checked it out and they, they need, definitely need to do so. Uh, the only other thing I want to mention before we kind of wrap this up is uh, doing some digging uh, on, on new versions of Quatermass. You know, there are a couple of different versions of it. I, I'm kind of curious to see what you thought of the newer versions and if you've watched those. You mean the, the 2005 what else, what else was there that more recent than that? Uh, 2005. There was an uh, early the, 90s the, one the, with, uh, um, I think it's called the Quittermass. It was a series. It's like 20 episodes or, well, I guess, no, if it's a UK, it was probably like six episodes. Uh, uh, the one that was just called Quittermass. Yeah, it was just called Quittermass. Yeah, uh, that, that was from 1979. Okay. Uh, I love it. Uh, that, that one kind of divides fans. It's, it's kind of the last Quittermass story. Gotcha. And you were saying that was um, the ones that's kind of sad, right? Um, yeah, he's he's way older. It, it's... Oh, I don't know that I would recommend watching that anytime soon. Okay. Because it, it is clearly set at the beginning of a dystopia. Okay. Like, you are, five, you are five years into a post-apocalyptic. Okay. Like, like things are still functioning. There, there's still television. There, there's still jobs and cars, but it has such a feel of, of an ending. Mm. Like it's, it's just at the point where, oh yeah, the old people are, are all homeless and possibly cannibals. But like, in a, in like five years past that, like society has crumbled completely. You, you just kind of feel, you, you know, something, something very bad is happening. But it's clearly the early part of that. Interesting. And maybe, may, may, maybe 2020 is, is not the year to watch <laughs> it. Yeah. 
Yeah. There's a lot of stuff I haven't watched this year because of 2020 where it's just like, Hey, you should watch this. It's really depressing, but I think you'd like it. I'm like, pass big, happy pass. Um, the last thing is kind of looking at, at, at try, attempts at remakes. Did you see that Alex Proyas had been, was rumored to have been working on a remake in 2000. And I guess the fact that he couldn't get, you know, like dark city and a couple of other films off the ground yeah. sort of scuttled that for him. Uh, and, and, you know, definitely it's probably no longer attached to that film. Yeah. And, and that's a shame, but, but there, I think there will always be attempts to bring it back mm-hmm. because of how it resonates in the UK to this day. So, so it'll be, it'll be nice. Someone will, will, will do uh, another version eventually. Uh, the 2005 one with David Tennant, uh, I haven't watched it since it first aired, and I, I found a uh, <clears throat> copy on the internet. Sure, sure. Is it uh, specifically Quatermass in the Pit? Uh, no, it's uh, the it's uh, uh, the Quatermass Experiment. Gotcha. It's it's a, it's a retelling of the first one, but it was done live. It was done live in 2005 oh. as the original one, uh, truncated to be just a film. That's it is very well cast. But it just kind of falls, the, the third act really falls flat for me. Ah, you hate that, right? That's yeah. interesting. Uh, as spoilers for it, but uh, Quatermass Experiment ends with a monster. Uh-huh. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a monster in, in Westminster Abbey, and it's the, the, a very Lovecraftian tentacle thing and, and t- tentacle plant monster thing. And they... With the 2005 live version, I, it felt like they said, there's no way we can do this live realistically, so they didn't even try. Oh, sad. There, there, is, no, there is no monster. It's, it's hmm. when, I think it fell flat for like a lot of people. Robert, what other future projects do you have you might want to plug for us? Oh, what do I got coming up? I think a lot of what I have coming up um, hasn't been announced yet, but, but let me see. Um, I did a series of covers for Aftershock Comics um, for a book called Red Atlantis. Uh, it is a book, it is a very timely book about, about people stealing an election <laughs> um, and attempts to do so. Um, what, what else do I have coming up? I think that's the only thing that's announced. I got a handful of other uh, covers in the pipeline. Yeah, I think that's the only one I can mention. Okay. Uh, where can people find you online if you want to be found? Oh, uh, uh, Google me. Uh, Twitter, uh, at uh, Robert underscore hack. Uh, Instagram, at Robert hack. Google is a helpful tool. <laughs> yeah, I'm around. Find me. <laughs> well, listen, thank you so much for joining us. This was uh... – this is exceptional. And I know like this is running a little longer than we normally do. And I feel like it could have gone much longer than we're allowing it. Oh, totally uh, yeah. It really could. It's a subject matter uh, that is ripe for discussion. Uh, and you are certainly the person to talk to about it. So we thank you very much for taking your time. There out are, and, uh, there are way out. bigger experts than me. There are way bigger experts than me. Um, but you're stuck with me. Hey, that's, that's, that's fine, man. Listen, uh, I, you know, if, if we, we attempted this with Toby Haydoke, we, this would be a, uh, a, a 14 hour maxi series. So, you know, so like, 
Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but no, really, thank you for, I, I for joining us. I'm eagerly awaiting his new book. I'm yes. eagerly awaiting Toby's new book on the, on the subject. Yeah. No, I think that'll be super brilliant. And uh, I'm, I'm really glad that, uh, that he's, he's putting that into it with the same dedication that he has with, with everything uh, that he does for everything that he loves. So, you know, yeah. brilliant guy. Robert, thank you for, for spending time with us. Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, and thank you for joining us at Who and Company. Who and Company, come for the fandom. Stay for the company. Thanks for joining us at Who and Company. Special shout out to Pixel Who for providing our logo. They can be found at facebook.com slash pixelwho. Who and Company can be found on iheartradio.com and Spotify. Or you can download the show directly from whoandcompany.libsyn.com. Contact us on Twitter at whoandcompany. Support the show on patreon.com slash whoandcompany. Or email us at whoandcompany at yahoo.com. Thanks, and see you next month.